Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today I'm delighted to have as my guest, Gabrielle Blackwell. Gabrielle, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Excellent. Would you mind giving the audience 60 to 90 seconds on your background, please? Yeah, so I've been in sales development or tech sales for the past five years. I started out as a sales development rep at a company called CloudWords. Since then, have moved from sales development to being an account executive, going back into sales development, moving into a manager position, taking over sales enablement as a sales enablement manager. And so now I've been very much focused on sales development management. I actually start at Gong on Monday where I'll be managing a sales development team. What wow. else? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So uh, that's super exciting. Huge um, congratulations. That's a, a great company. Yes. Thank you. Thank Ryan thank Longfield's you. team. Oh yeah. Uh, so yes, I'll be underneath Ryan. There's some, there's one person in between myself and Ryan. So I'll be working for a guy named Willie Pearson, who's the senior director of sales and business development over there. But yeah, I've Fantastic. I've really just been focused on coming into organizations, really establishing or turning around their sales development team, standing it up. So everything from the tools, the technology, onboarding, hiring, pretty much everything from scratch and getting that getting that program to performance. So that's been really the focus of the past two or three years. Wonderful. Okay. Well, um, I mean, that's a hell of a meteoric rise for someone who's only been in sales for five years. So I'm going to deviate from the the structure that we talked about, as I promised you I would. So what are the qualities that have allowed you to catapult your career so quickly and uh, to take on roles of such significance and responsibility? So I like telling people this. I say, you know, I I really do believe in myself and I have confidence in my abilities. And I don't just say that. I like do the work required in order to possess that confidence and that belief in myself. So I think other folks might call this maybe an intellectual curiosity. I would say if there are things that I don't know how to do, I have a couple of choices. I can either be at this organization and wait for them to equip me with that information and those insights and that knowledge or or the capabilities, or I can go out and find that and speed up my learning and almost like super, supercharge my development on my own. So I think that like the first part, which is believing that I have the ability to grow and learn at an accelerated rate, creating the conditions in which I can actually accomplish that learning and build up those competencies, finding people who are going to give me a chance. I think also like, you know, just taking the time to, and, and taking the moment to say, I'm in full control and full ownership over the possibilities in my career. And so, yes, I might be younger. I might not have as much experience, but I'm definitely like headstrong when I'm saying I'm going to move forward in the way that I really see fit for myself. So I think it's, you know, very much a drive. It's holding a vision and it's sticking to it and, and not letting my faith falter. Fabulous. So tell me this, what are your daily learning habits? What do you do every day, every week, every month, every every quarter that allow you to stay ahead? Yeah. So I don't have this broken down into a very neat structure whatsoever. I listen and I read. That's pretty much it. So for instance, if I, in the way that I'll go about this, I'll give you an example. I wanted to go about building, you know, a brand, a personal brand. So and I think of personal branding, like on LinkedIn, for example. So this is maybe February or March. And I started to see people pop up in LinkedIn like Nikki Ivy, for example. And I was like, right, here's this person, because uh, you know, it's also important to know that I'm a Black woman. So I'm like, here's this Black woman in the sales development 
sphere, who is rising up, who has a following, who's sharing really valuable insights and information and is getting a lot of support for that. And so I looked at her and I was like, you know what, that's something that I would like to aspire to do. So I just started to, not to say like I studied her, but I kind of just like looked at what she was writing and what people are engaging with. I did that for other folks who had larger followings and who are posting about the things that I was really interested in. So the more that I kind of studied like what they were doing, I then could start to almost like teach myself or give myself a theory as to here's how I'm going to go about this. So like that was one, that's one example. If it's, all right, I see myself being a chief revenue officer in like three or five years, for example, I'll use that scenario. I'm going to go to folks who have been in that chief revenue officer spot. I'm going to learn about how they got there. I'm going to learn about how they develop themselves into that not just, you know, they're, they're holding the title, but they're also like accomplishing things and they're an effective CRO. So like for me, there's a lot of envisioning what it is that I want to do, creating a, a path. It doesn't have to be super detailed, but creating or visualizing a path to get there and then reaching out to the individuals who've already done that path and learning from them as to what to do after that. I'm feeling deeply under-accomplished. It's taken me 35 years to get to that point. So... <laughs> that, that's that, that's an incredible uh, journey, but also it's the the right mindset. I mean, I've studied mm-hmm. the top performers, and they have a an incredible sense of personal responsibility, and mm-hmm. that everything that happens to them, every result that they get, is down to them. They mm-hmm. are rapaciously curious. They yes. look for help. They're not afraid to ask for help. They're not brittle. Their ego doesn't get in the way of their own ignorance. They they understand that if they want to progress, they have to learn from other people. They're very collaborative and they're very driven. So that, that's really fascinating. And I'm, I'm delighted. In fact, I have uh, Wendy Van Hilst, who is in, the, in LinkedIn's marketing team, coming on in a couple of weeks specifically talking about developing your personal brand. So I'd be really curious to build on this conversation. uh, Yeah. Take that into the uh, the one with Wendy. Okay, so tell me this. What are the four most common questions that people ask you about building a successful sales development team? Yeah. Like, what are the common tools, right? What tools should should I be looking at? Which KPIs should I be tracking and measuring? how to motivate and inspire reps and how should I structure my quota, my quotas? Those are, I would say the top four. So tell me this, let's start with the tools. What what were the minimum tools necessary to enable Mm -hmm. salespeople to be effective without distancing them from their customers and Mm -hmm. without falling into the trap of sacrificing effectiveness for efficiency. Yeah. So for sales development, I mean, a CRM, I think is, is key, is crucial. Most of the time I talk to folks, they have a CRM. Like that's, that's already been in. And it's a matter of, all right, what, what else is needed? I think even within the CRM, what is critical is having dashboards, right? So it's not just, all right, hey, here's the technology, but here are the parts of the technology that are going to be incredibly important. I would say contact data, quality contact data is required, is, is absolutely required. And 
and then also an email, right? So I think if you have those three paces, you can you can set up a, a sales development team. Cool. I think the things that are going to be the difference between a team who is able to increase their goals, because typically when I'm coming in at organizations, the reason I'm coming in is because they need to now 2x what they did the year before. So only having email the CRM and your contact data isn't going to be enough. You need to have a way, you need to provide and enable the reps with the ability to move very quickly without sacrificing quality. So this is where I think sales engagement platforms like outreach and sales law become critically important. Just because try to manage like all, all the different outreaches and touch points and, and knowing what to say and what not to, and even being able to measure email effectiveness or your outreach effectiveness. The other option without these platforms is maybe to have a a system where the reps are tracking that manually, right? And you're not turning them into admins. So like, I think that gets in the way of productivity if you don't have a sales engagement platform like the two I mentioned. I don't think this one is critical yet, but there's going to be people who don't agree with me. I think sale, LinkedIn Sales Now is a platform, is a tool that is incredibly helpful. I don't know if it's critically essential, but I, it's very helpful. I've certainly found that it is. The problem that I find is that people who've spent a fortune on sales navigator licenses generally aren't using LinkedIn well. And Mm -hmm. it's a lot of interruption marketing and they're not creating human-to-human engagement, which is a huge mistake. And I I know that obviously you're moving to Gong. So Mm -hmm. those conversational analytics tools, I think increasingly are going to be more and more important. And in fact, Given the lockdown situation, every single yep. is now a learning opportunity. And the way yes. I see is really coming into their own is not only to help managers to coach their salespeople, but also for salespeople to coach themselves. When I got introduced to Gong, so I used Gong in 2016 when I was an account executive at Acton. So it's funny, I was talking to a meet the CAO during my interview process and he gets on, he's like, oh, did you know that you were like one of the earlier, the earlier uh, users of Gong, <laughs> like back in 2016? It's like, oh, I didn't know that. And so like, that was the way that we used it. It was, I'm going to have a call. I'm going to do, I'm going to review it like game tape. And there's the other use case here as a rep. Like when I was in the account executive seat is I was a newer rep I still had so much to learn. I wanted to be able to anticipate what was going to be going on in these calls. And so I would just look up to see what other deals are in the pipeline from other reps. So there was 74 other AEs at this organization. And like, I want to look at the ones where we move them forward to the next stage and that the industry matched the industry that I was about to go after. The titles match the titles that I'm going to speak to. And so I wanted to be able to prepare for that call and better understand like what are the questions they're going to ask what are their like what are the moments or what are the keywords that are triggering an aha moment right so like then i can start to game plan but that's gong was very much like a, a a platform like built for the rep and we weren't necessarily leveraging it right in coaching conversations in our one-on-ones with our directors yet that's really interesting how are you seeing that evolve now yeah, I mean, it it went from being just being. I mean, it, there was no transcriptions when I was using Gong in in 2016, right? So even that is incredibly interesting because I can go back and I can highlight, I can annotate. If I wanted to print it out, they have the ability to like almost have those conversations on the side now. I mean, there's other things that I'm learning about as like 
how can Gong be leveraged by marketers and demand gener- like demand generation marketers to build campaigns? So something as simple as like, what are the main keywords that are popping up? Or if you can break it down into regional, yeah, if you can splice the data out across regions. So let's say um, I was talking to a company who uh, does ethical hacking, right? They're based out on the West Coast and they had a rep, they had an SDR who was, who was tackling the Midwest. And so they're saying ethical hacking, ethical hacking. And that were like those two words together in the Midwest just didn't resonate in the same way they did on the West Coast. And it was actually like prevention monitoring was like the more acceptable way or the more embraced term versus ethical hacking. So like if marketing can go in, demand generation marketing can go in and start to understand like what are the actual keywords based off of the region or based off of the industry, they can now start to create more meaningful content that people are going to be more likely to engage with. So like these are, there was no conversations as to like, oh, how can demand generation tune into Gong, right? It's like, all right, we don't want to like hover over the AEs, but I feel like Gong has made like conversation intelligence or revenue intelligence much more accessible. It can be broken down in so many different ways that we just... I would have never even thought, like fathomed to think of five years ago. That's really interesting because, uh, again, one of the things that's really a central theme to a lot of the work that I've been doing, in particular the last couple of years, is how do you mm-hmm. humanize and personalize your marketing and your selling? Because I think, unfortunately, uh, an awful lot of marketing actually mm-hmm. has the opposite unintended consequence of alienating an audience. I think it was Dan Kennedy said it, that the price of free marketing is all the people who will never do business with you. And I think the same thing goes. If you do not personalize, if you don't regionalize, if you don't colloquialize your approach to feed the local market and the individual, then you're mm-hmm. going to find yourself uh, using generic stuff, which may yep. be a bit, hit, a bit hit and miss. And we're all about improving that slight edge. And that's certainly what I'm seeing with these conversational analytics tools and um, with the impact that you can have as a manager, coaching, Mm -hmm. seeing what's working best from your top reps, from the most successful calls, and then sharing that information. Tell me this. I mean, as you go into this new role, taking the lessons that you've learned from the last five years, how much peer-to-peer learning are you engaging in? So I wish I had done it more, right? In the sales development manager position, one of the challenges or one of the just truths of the matter, right? And this is not an excuse. One of the truths of the matter was at the last two companies that I was at where I was an SDR manager, I was the only SDR manager. So it was a little bit like, what am I going to do here? So I just kind of powered through and tried to take direction from the person who was my boss, right? To figure out how to, how to navigate the way that I have overcome right or circumvented being the only at my company has been to join communities such as like revenue collective or rev genius and so i know in revenue collective specifically there is a whole channel just specifically for sales development leaders so there's round tables and there's events and programs and opportunities to connect with people who are my peers just at different conversations and so in that like that has been that's been so powerful and so helpful. And at Gong, I, I, I'll be on a team of SDR managers. So I'm incredibly excited to be able to have that experience or the the accessibility to peer-to-peer learning in the organization that I'm at. So that's, that is one thing that is new for me that I'm looking to further explore. 
Excellent. Okay. And to, to take it within the team itself, that peer-to-peer learning, mm. how are you going to bring that to play? Yes. Okay. So in like, so I've been doing that for a while. Here's my thought is the way I kind of conceptualize or contextualize the relationship of a like an individual contributor and the person that they're reporting to directly is it has the potential to play out like a child and parent relationship. So I like to think about my own like relationship with my parent. And so if my mom, for example, just tells me what to do, I'm likely going to resist. But if one of my friends tells me, oh, hey, like I just tried this thing out and it could be word for word what my mom said, but it came from my friend who I've, like, and the reason why I'm going to really value what my friend is telling me is we have the same schedule. We're, we have the same, the same day to day. We're going through the exact same things. Like this is someone who I feel like can relate to me a lot more and who can provide insights into like, this is why I'm trying this out and here's how it's affecting me. And I can see that live. So that's what I think about for like the sales development team is like, if I'm just, I can tell people what to do all day long, but it's much more powerful. And that message can be that, that can be received that much more from folks who are, who can relate like at a much deeper level because they're in the seat all day long. So what I'll do in one-on-ones, so, you know, I'll ask everybody the same kind of questions during these one-on-ones mostly. So it's, Hey, you know, like what's going well this week? What are some wins? Thinking about what's going well and what these wins are, how can you get more of that? And what are some of the challenges that you're having and being able to do that? And typically somebody's going to surface up something that, Rep number one, like James over here, he has this figured out so well. Like I was like, so I'm like, let me match James up with this rep who's having a challenge. So I'm gonna like, I'm gonna prep James, like, hey James, you know, I just talked to Matt, and Matt shared that he's struggling with a couple of these things. I really love your like how you approach this thing here. Would you mind sitting down with Matt and just kind of walking him through how you came up with this and what you're seeing today? And so they'll have like a one-on-one, they'll have a one-on-one together. They'll have a coaching session or like a brainstorming session or whiteboarding session virtually, right? And that will feel a lot better about, okay, it's not just my manager asking me to try something new. It's something that somebody who's in the same seat as me is trying and it's working for them. One thing that's worked really well for my clients, it, well, three things. We have a Monday morning check-in. And mm-hmm. as the manager, you ask, what are your top three goals for this week? And it's not just doing their job, which is make three appointments a day or whatever it is. But it's more like something uh, along the lines of learn how to reverse using the Chinese menu or how to improve my impact in the first eight seconds of the call or something like that. And then find out why they want to pick that those three things. And then how are they going to measure it? What are the consequences of not achieving those goals? And how can I help? And that sets them up for the week. And it gets them thinking that about their learning rather than just simply doing their job. On a daily basis, my pal Antonio Garrido came up with this, which is a team stitch meeting. And it's Mm -hmm. what's today's most important call? What's the decision that we're hoping to get at the end of it? Can you share the agreement that you have in place at the beginning for the start of that call? And can you show me your pre-call plan? Because I want salespeople to get into the habit 
of planning. I'm less interested yeah. in the volume. I'm interested in the quality and the effectiveness of those calls. And um, the Friday afternoon checkout refers back. It's like a, in comedy, you know, you, you start a joke uh, and then you move on and then you come back and you refer back to it. So it's a callback. Mm-hmm. So the yeah. Friday afternoon check-in is how did you perform against goal one, two, and three? What were the specific hits and misses? What were the drivers of those hits and misses? What are you going to stop doing, start doing, continue doing, and how can I help? Because I, I think managers have five critical functions. Hire the best people. If you hire yep. well, then most of your management problems go out the window. Next thing is get the best out of them. That means pre-onboarding, onboarding, training, coaching, accountability with consequences, and constant you know, ride-alongs, all that kind of stuff. Then make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. So make sure they've got the outreaches and the gongs and so on. But also tools in terms of pre-call planners, post-call debriefing tools, pursuit uh, tools, you know, that kind of thing. Help them clear roadblocks and protect them from acts of idiocy from senior management. Um, They happen a lot. And I like that phrase. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> acts of idiocy that's hilarious <laughs> and 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 the other critical piece which my friend Ian Dodds suggested is manage inclusively make sure everybody feels they have a voice and their voice is valued and wh- when you manage like that then they do most of the heavy lifting because I don't think management is about being a supervisor it's anything but that if you've hired well and you develop them well then they will teach you. I, I've yes. learned more from my clients than I ever did, um, uh, than I think I've ever taught them. I agree 150%. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> oh, and, I was, and I was taking notes on all of this. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm learning right now. Thank you. <laughs> so for those of you who don't have Gong, by the way, a really useful tool, it's 10 bucks a month. It's called fireflies.ai. You can plug it into your Zoom calls or you can take the MP3 file, and it's very, very accurate. Uh, so far, I've found as a machine transcription, uh, it's about 98% accurate. So it's pretty damn good. And then you can capture all those lessons, and you can distribute them and share them. And I think this is the other really important thing. Rising tide raises all boats. One of the most valuable things that I've found for the last 17 years in training is lessons learned. And having people share their lessons and then teach those lessons to other people because that does two things. If you're going to teach it, you have to understand it really well. And by teaching it, it reinforces what you know. So it's massively powerful. You touched on KPIs and metrics. I'm curious, what are the leading indicators that you focus on? Because my concern is that very often managers have a tendency to measure what's already happened and that stuff, you know, things like revenue, dials, proposals, demos, doesn't actually tell you stuff that you can use to change the trajectory of the ship. Right. By the time uh, you've got that information in, you've already hit the iceberg and you're at the bottom of the ocean. So what are the yeah. leading indicators that you focus on? <clears throat> so I, I, back, I like process. And I don't mean just like implementing process for process's sake. I feel like a process, a really solid process can answer the question, like, how do we win in a predictable way, right? Like, what, like what, is, like, what are the steps? What is, what is the recipe for success that we can 
always follow, right? Or that we can iterate off of. And so that process to me is first, like it's first and foremost informed by the results and the actions I have to go into driving those results. So leading kind of indicators that I would say are those kind of check marks, right? Those snapshots in time. So it's ever, you know, things such as, you know, the number of activities, but I, I'm more curious as to like how those activities are distributed, right? How are they distributed across accounts and contacts? Because I've had reps who have done, they've hit their activity goals, but when I actually go and look to see where those activities are going, it's like 50 accounts. And if I know that the conversion rate that this guy needs to hit, or not the conversion rate, but based off of the guy's conversion rates and how many accounts that he needs to work, he needs to work 150, 200 accounts, and he's only working 52. I was like, all right, this is why you're never going to like go above 30% of your quota. So like for me, I, I, I'm more so interested in understanding how many activities across a certain number of accounts and contacts are required in order to generate a conversation. And so if we're not having conversations, we're not booking meetings. So like those are the kinds of things that I'm most curious about and that I think have a bigger impact as to if we're going to hit our number or not. So yeah, it's like activities, like where those activities are across accounts and contacts. And then after that, it's going to be, okay, like what's the engagement look like right after we're, we're reaching out to folks. I'll give you an example of like why these things are interesting and looking at the conversion rates between those steps. So I had a rep on my team who, if I looked at like month over month, 17, anywhere between like 13 to 17% of the accounts that he would work at any one point in time would convert over into meetings. And so I'm like, right. Hey, from January until August, we had this, this, that conversion rate. And then all of a sudden in September, it's 7%, right? And this is the one month that he didn't hit his quota in the entire time that he's been there. So I, you know, then I can start asking him questions around like, Hey, like I saw that there was all of a sudden a huge dip Right. And I also know that you were experimenting with a different vertical, right? Or some other verticals. Do you like do you feel as though like that, like the the verticals that you're starting to work now are actually converter converting over at a higher rate? Or were you having more success and kind of what we had established was the the proper ICP for your region specifically? So those those are the kinds of insights that I feel like are are really like the leading indicators of are we gonna be able to hit our goals? Right, or are we going to be falling behind? It's interesting. I mean, the the four things that I routinely have people measure are number of unique, effective conversations. So, how often do they pick up the phone, get past the gatekeeper, through to the decision maker, and establish a verbal contract that at the end of that conversation, one or two things is going to happen: either they're going to hang up and part friends, or they're going to invite them in. Um, right. The second thing is the velocity with which opportunities move through the funnel. The third is the number of opportunities moving from qualified to closable. And the fourth is the conversion rate from first meeting to second meeting. Um, mm-hmm. What I see, and this is a horrific statistic, is seven out of eight on average, seven out of eight first meetings do not convert to a second. And yes. often, if we see these, any of those metrics go down, the conversion rate is often either they're speaking to the wrong people or they're doing a terrible job when they're there and they're not bringing value and insight uh, when they speak to the prospect. But more often than not, they're just simply not agreeing and contracting for a clear next step. 
I mean, would it surprise you if I told you that 80% of full-time professional field sales people's time is spent chasing people they should have closed or disqualified on the last call? I believe it, 100%. Uh, and you, you eliminate you that. Some... Well, yeah. sorry, to, uh, if you eliminate that and you fix that, that's a 400% increase in production capability. It, that's it's, staggering. I mean, why, why would you not? Uh, yes. I, I, so, no, because you'd mentioned something important. So I'm thinking about things from like the sales development view, right? But if I thought about, all right, what are the, because for me, the, um, the velocity of deals moving through the funnel, the stage one to stage two conversion rates, like those are the things that we're tracking, right? And also like this is out of the hands of the sales development rep. And these are also measurements where I ask myself, how can we impact these? Because that is going to essentially be like a lagging, indicator that's going to be something that we don't have direct control over but that is going to be assessed or that we can use at least to start helping ourselves be seen as more effective and more valuable because it's not enough just to say all right well the win rate for sdr source like outbound opportunities is 50 percent lower than what the aes are doing right and just leaving that as it is I think that's an invitation to ask the question, why? Like, why is that happening exactly? Like, why are we like, why is that such a drastic dip? Is it and so like, you know, because people can come to their assumptions, which is, all right, well, maybe the AEs are better at sourcing their own opportunities, right? But what we're really finding out is like, these are opportunities that AEs have been chasing for two years, right? right? So like, yes, like they have a seven, eight percent, you know, like they have a seven, eight percent bump on top of the SDRs are doing, but the SDRs are bringing in net new, unique opportunities. Well, this is like the third, fourth, fifth time that an AE has opened up this exact same opportunity. So can we actually be like measuring them in the exact same ways? Interesting. Okay. Well, this then brings me to the next really thorny question. And I know there's no one size fits all, but one of the things that's often made me wonder and frustrated me is the unintended consequences of the wrong compensation plan. And I think the question that's going through my mind is, should it just be down to individual performance? Um, Because I, I think from the customer's perspective, there is a massive disconnect uh, often when there's a handover from marketing to the SDR, from the SDR to the AE, from the AE to uh, customer success and so on. And I think that I'm seeing it happen in Microsoft, for example, in their partner channel. You get a small amount for bringing a deal over the line. You get a much bigger chunk of money when there is a high level of utilization. And you get another big chunk of money when they renew. And I think part of the problem is that so many tech companies are focused on the land grab and they're focused on growth instead of focused on generating lifetime customers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So um, uh, Chris Dannon, who was uh, Zig Ziglar's torchbearer for 35 years, uh, he was his right-hand man. And he uh, taught me something really valuable, which is you don't prospect for this month or this quarter. You prospect for five years down the road. And I think psychologically, that shifts the emphasis. And what it requires is really brave leadership and management. In the early stages of uh, an SDR's development, 
they're not going to be hitting their numbers very quickly because what we're really interested in is quality, not volume. Because I see so many SDRs suffering from burnout. And I know this is a a topic that uh, is near and dear to your heart. And, you know, the incredible, ludicrous pressure that's put on young reps and, um, you know, the the corpses on the battlefield that uh, you've left behind uh, to get to where you are. It must be a terrifying number, but to focus on the comp plan. I'm curious about your thoughts about having a compensation scheme where the team component based around building lifetime customers, utilization, renewals is an integral component of everybody's compensation. So it takes away the men, uh, the mindset that it's all about that lone wolf producer. Um, mm-hmm. And how do we serve the customer better? And how do we get them shouting from the rafters that you need to, you know, buy from Gong or LinkedIn or yeah. fast? It's a couple of years, however many years ago it was, and this is when I was at a company called Potability. And we were some of the conversations that were happening was like, how do we structure our teams? And essentially, you know, like, and then how do we comp them? And what are we actually driving to? So the, the traditional way of thinking is that individuals are money motivated. And so like, let's give them a very, let's give them a plan that is very lucrative. But when we actually put it into action, we realize I'm like, all right, this one person can't actually crack into the space that we want them to crack into by themselves. They just can't do it by themselves. But what could happen if we had a team dynamic going in? So I have not implemented this, right? So it's very theoretical. <laughs> it lives in concept. So like, let me just preface that. But what I, I do believe, and actually, this is not even a new idea. I think I listened to this on a podcast with one of the leaders from, from HubSpot years ago. And he talked about how he moved the team into a pod structure, right? So you essentially have, so it's like, if you have, one or two AEs or one AE, one or two SDRs, one customer success person, and one field marketer. And so they are they they are all responsible for generating a certain amount of pipeline and closing, you know, closing deals and having a certain number of like lifetime, like there's a lifetime value that they are assigned for for generating. The whole team essentially is comped in very similar ways. And so it is a team comp structure, a pod comp structure. And so the idea here is that like, what happens when we say, all right, let's say if the SDR, like if we know that in order to get this lifetime value and we're able to, you know, reverse engineers, all the different milestones that need to happen all the way down to like the number of unique conversations that should be happening. Then let's say, you know, the SDR of course is, might be the number one person who's going to be generating that meeting. But if an AE generates a meeting as well, everybody's getting paid on that, right? So like, there's always ways to win. There's always ways to make money. Everybody is invested and everybody can make an equal contribution to the success of everybody else. And so, I mean, we know that HubSpot's pretty successful, right? And, yeah. and worked really well. So, you know, I don't know if that's the model for, for everyone, but I, I do think, I do feel as though that shift is, is might be coming even sooner is how can we make sales a team sport rather than a individual's, you know, Herculean effort <laughs> like to hit these goals. Well, I think it's a myth that salespeople are motivated by money. They're motivated by the choices that they can make when they make a certain amount of money. And the people who are genuinely motivated by money are generally soulless sharks. I've done quite a lot of work over the last 10, 15 years um, with 
younger salespeople. And what I'm finding in particular with the late Gen Z and millennials is that they are motivated by experience, by growth, by learning, and they want to develop and grow. And where you've got an environment like that, I mean, in HubSpot, uh, one of the things I loved about their compensation scheme uh, or their benefit scheme was you have unlimited vacation. Wow. If you can hit your target on the 2nd of January, you can spend the next 364 days somewhere else. So I think it's really fascinating. There was a really interesting book called Punished by Rewards by Alfie Cohn, K-O-H-N. And Mm -hmm. his research suggests that where extrinsic reward is implemented, it diminishes motivation. And what I think a, a lot, certainly for me, yeah, you know, I'm I'm now in the luxurious position where I can actually make money relatively easily because I've learned mm-hmm. my craft. And what's fascinating is I'm just not motivated by money. I had someone approach me and they're offering me a fairly big chunk of cash to be a reseller for them, but I just didn't like the person. Um, yeah, and I didn't want to work with him. And it was easy to turn it away. Now, wh- when you're first starting out and you're starving and you're trying to make the rent, clearly I'm not starving. But when when you've got to make the rent, I get the pressure. But what that does, it turns you into a bit of an idiot because your amygdala takes over and then you sell selfishly. But that whole concept, I think, is... uh, And if if any of you are listening and you've got thoughts on this, please come in, ask questions, send me your ideas. If there's any great material out there that you've read, you've watched, you've listened to, then please uh, point me in that direction because I want to do a bunch of podcasts around compensation and how to drive the right behavior. I think one of the mistakes a lot of people make is the belief that you can motivate people. You cannot. Motivation is an internal force. It's an internal fire. You can inspire, bully, brutalize, cajole, threaten, beat with a carrot, uh, beat with a stick. But what you can't do is motivate. And I think in the recruitment process, it's so important to understand an individual's personal drivers, why they're in sales, why they're going for this job, for whom they're doing it, and then build your management uh, coaching program uh, in order to help them achieve and realize those objectives. So let me ask you this, because I know that when we did our initial chat, you Mm -hmm. talked about uh, your own experience of the pressure that you felt and the mental stress that it put you under, but Mm -hmm. also the the lives that were destroyed around you because <laughs> uh, ludicrous management pressure. Do you mind yeah. expanding on that a little bit and uh, telling us your story there? Yeah. So you hit on so many pieces. I think here's what I truly believe is I'll give an example. How about this? I, I, I just got a puppy. Her name is Luna. She's four months old, little mini dachshund, just weighed her. She's six pounds and the vet's like, she's not going to get any bigger. She's so little. And one of the things that she really enjoys doing is biting. Like she just wants to nip, 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 right all the time. And so, so I've been asking some like dog trainers, I've been doing my research and I'm like, you know, like how, like, it's almost like how to rear the dog and like what kind of tools and mechanisms can be used in order to discourage or encourage certain behaviors. And so the whole idea here is like, you can punish the dog in certain ways, right? Something, whether that's, all right, hey, you're going to go into a crate, right? You can like give them a little pat on the butt, but in giving them 
pun like in giving them a punishment, like a punishment can also be a reward for them. So what ends up happening is like, all right, they're going to miss, you know, this dog in my mind is going to misbehave. I will maybe I'll give her a little pat on the butt. And so she will start to expect a pat on the butt from me. So that the only thing that's happening here is rather than her, like me saying, Hey, like, please stop its behavior. And she stops behavior. She now expects for me to attack her. That is what's happening. So let's bring this into the sales force, right? And this is something that actually happened with me. If I'm seeing that, all right, hey, like the way that people are treated when they're not hitting their number right away, which I think is a naive expectation, <laughs> right? If people are not doing exactly what you want them to, or they're not getting the results in the same pace that you thought they were, and people start to berate, right? Or cajole or mistreat these folks or try to say, oh, hey, just because you're not a top performer, all of a sudden you're lesser than. I was like, the only thing that you're doing is you're like, you are reinforcing the idea to them that they are going to get hit. Right. I'm like, and if you are not, so at that point in time, they're questioning their safety in the organization. So yeah. like you're, if you're questioning your, your safety and you're in survival mode, how can you grow? Number one, how can you learn? right? You're like in a state of panic all the time. So like that was essentially the environment right, that I found myself in, which is you have this very high pressure, like aggressive growth kind of place. And then the management and the leadership, the way that they strove to quote unquote, motivate people, right? Or encourage people was to roast them at this bit in front of a team, right? Or to back talk them or to bad talk them in other spaces. And so I'm like, all right, well, number one, we didn't hit our goals because everybody's too work like, you no, know, hey, I have a conversation with a coworker. Somebody is really upset at me and they expressed all those things. I need to now go into the back room and cry for 30, 45 minutes, get myself back in it, and then try and be productive for the rest of the day. So it's actually in the way that we're managing and the way that we're leading in those kind of organizations that strive to belittle people right? Should you not be a high flying Eagle? I'm like, you're actually, you, like we are the management, right? So as part of it, as part of that team. So I'll, I'll take ownership for it as well is as part of that team, we're actually getting in the way and inhibiting our own growth at that point in time. So I experienced that kind of environment and I also suffered for it. And it was the person who was like, all right, I'm never going to measure up to somebody's expectations. No matter what I do, I'm always going to fall short. And so I'm trying to overcompensate. And I only have so much energy right, in a day, in a week, in a month, in a year. So I end up expending myself so much so that I burn out in a glorious, glorious flame. Right. So like coming away from that, you know, like walking away from that experience and recognizing, you know what, like, what would it be like to go to sleep, excited about going into work the next day. And I've experienced it, like when I was at CloudWords. And I'm like, and what was part of that? Like what factored into that feeling of, I'm excited to go into work. I'm excited about what I'm going to learn today. I'm excited about the impact that I'm going to make. I'm excited about the goals that I have and my ability to accomplish that. It was, I already possessed all of those traits right? And those characteristics and that thought process. And when I met with my manager, it's like, it was more so around, as you mentioned, like, what are the challenges that are inhibiting me from hitting those goals? And he started just to remove roadblocks at that point in time. He didn't berate me if I didn't hit my goal. He was curious and asked, what's going on here? Where do you need help? I have a view that there's no such thing as a learning disability. It's always a mm. teaching disability. If I had a client 
who wasn't able to make progress. It was on me to find a way to help them. Mm-hmm. And I think if you extend that belief into management, I mean, some people are not cut out for sales. And, um, yeah. But you, you can help them uh, so far. They have to want to change. They have to want to grow and develop. Yeah. And if they don't have the desire to do that, then you're just going to be pushing rope uphill. So you're better off moving them into another role, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. But if they have the willingness and they have the capacity to grow, then absolutely it's incumbent on you as a manager. And in fact, Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, if you had even a janitor leave within six months of hiring them, you got flown out to head office and you had to sit outside the headmaster's office and then <laughs> explain why that person left within six months. Yeah. And you didn't do that twice. First of all, because the embarrassment and the horror, but it was pretty career limiting. And I, I think, you know, you've touched on something else, which is catch people doing things right. If yes. you train dolphins, I remember reading about this about 15 years ago. If you train dolphins and you only ever give them fish when they do stuff that you want them to, then they start getting bored and complacent and they stop doing the tricks. So the trick is to throw them a fish every now and again just for the hell of it. You know, catching people doing stuff right is really important as well. And I don't know if you've ever read the research from Gallup uh, around strengths, but a, a lesson that I learned, which is re- has been really valuable, is that your strengths are your best development areas. Your weaknesses are not. You yes. put me in a room teaching me about Excel. I will still be completely shit at it after three weeks. <laughs> um, but you put me in a room, teach me about psychology, behavioral economics, about selling, about marketing, about yeah. communication. And I'll be teaching it within 24 hours. And I'll yes. be putting it into action and I'll fail at it, but I'll learn. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's an awful lot. I mean, um, Sandler did a research study at the beginning of 2020 where it's identified that 94% of sales managers are not fit for purpose. I was going to say, because you had mentioned of like, not everybody's meant for sales. And I was waiting for you to say like to end that with management. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, but the problem there is so many managers get into management because they they see, you know, they want to make progress and they want uh, the car with the black leather seats and um, yeah. you, know, you know, the supercharged engine and everything. And they want to turn left on the plane. And they see the only way to do that is go into management. But actually putting top producers into management, more often than not, is a terrible mistake. And you get a double whammy because you end up getting a shit manager and losing a top producer. Tom Castley at Outreach made a really interesting observation. First of all, he won't promote anyone into management until they've had at least 15 months on the job. Yep. And the ones that he promotes into management are the ones with the deepest and widest account penetration. It's not mm. the ones with the highest production. It's the ones that have expanded those accounts the best because their mindset is about helping the customer. To succeed in management, you have to derive your greatest satisfaction from seeing others succeed. The problem that I see with most managers' trajectory is you're the top producer. You get tapped on the shoulder and told, Gabrielle, congratulations, we fired your boss, you're now the manager, and you do what was done to you. And so in that 15 months, they learn how to coach, they learn how to run meetings, they learn how to forecast, they learn how to train, they learn how to uh, write, write and run reports, they learn mm-hmm. how to do ride-alongs, they learn how to mentor. And I think that's really important. So yeah. in terms of your own 
trajectory into management. What kind of exposure did you have to those management functions that are so different from being a salesperson? None. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not going to lump you in the 94%. How did you learn? When I was at CloudWorks, right, when I was an SDR, I was a top performer. Like I was the rep who was hitting like 200% of my quota wow. in some months kind of thing. So I was the top performer. And, and I think what helped me be a top performer was, number one, that kind of insatiable curiosity to understand more, to know more, right? To learn and grow, to understand, okay, I'm being successful, but why? Like, why is that? Why, 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 why? And how can I help myself more? And so in me trying to help myself become more successful, I started creating frameworks for success, right? So it was something as simple as, all right, I've got a a piece of paper, little sticky notes on it. And each sticky note represents some bucket of value that we can provide to a customer. And so how am I going to know that, you know, if I'm talking to someone, like, how do I know that they would benefit from this value bucket? It's like, all right, well, I can start to track and trace that there are some patterns or some keywords that are said over and over again. So I really just like was paying attention to what the customers or prospective customers were telling us. And it's like, right, this is like, you know, this is what it's going to light up their imagination. This is what's going to get them to you know go into a meeting. I had broken that down. And so I had done this all by myself and I'd gone to my manager and I'd said, Hey, listen, like, I think there's an opportunity to make this onboarding program a lot better based off of the things that I've had to do for myself. And so like, can I please be responsible, right? For onboarding. So I I shouldn't say that I had no exposure, but no one was like, Hey, like, I'm going to teach you how to do these things. I had a manager who allowed me to manage up. Right. So I was given a lot of flexibility, a lot of freedom with that. And he was the kind of person who would kind of coach me through maybe here's how to present the information to new folks who are coming in and here's how to slow down those kind of things. But, you know, like being on the sales floor, I was also the kind of rep who could, who's very effective. So I can do 50 activities in a day. On, like, I was, I, I said, if my quota, if I, what my weekly goal needs to look like is I need to get five meetings this week. I could come in on a Monday and get five meetings before lunch kind of thing. Like those were the things that were happening. So then I can start kind of stepping away and like, I can, I can do like side-by-side coaching with some of the other reps. So these are just things that I just did because I, I enjoyed it. And I think like when I, so when I got into the management position, the hardest part of that initially, like without having somebody coach or train and whatever else, and just to kind of be out on my own is a lot of what I learned was through trial and error. But again, like, I think it comes back to asking like, why? all right, I had a conversation with someone and with somebody I was managing and the conversation didn't really go well, right? Like, why is it like, so let me, you know, let me reflect on what I, what I shared, what, you know, the person I'm managing shared, and let me go to somebody in the organization who can coach me through this. So I did have to mess up a lot, but I had people in the organization. It was actually our, our head of HR, right? Where I felt like she could be a mentor for me and help me in understanding like, how can I present? Cause I think there was a time where people can interpret how I spoke as abrasive. <laughs> so, and, and that was like, I can't that wasn't believe the that goal. For a second, <laughs> I've, I've learned. It's not to say that I was trying to be abrasive. I had not yet grown my vernacular, right? And also, I don't think I had the the same level of patience and understanding, or even like wisdom. So, what I mean by this is, as a new manager or even as a new rep, like we can learn all these things, and we then we want to word vomit all over somebody about all the things that we want to know. So as a new manager, I I was like, okay, well, I just need to kind of talk my way through this kind of thing. And and if I can 
you know, if I can position myself as this like all knowing person, then people will have faith in me. And it's like, no, that's not it. What I need to shut it up and just listen. Right. So like now with the reps, I'm like, right. I think more than anything else, people just want to vent sometimes. <laughs> like sometimes people just need to vent and they need to live the stuff out. And so they have that release and we talk about it. We try and figure out ways where it's like, right. Hey, like obviously this is taking a lot of like, this is taking an emotional toll on you. Um, so what, like help me understand, like, how can I help to alleviate some of that for you? My friend Carlos Garrido, Antonio's brother, taught me something really valuable, which is at the beginning of a coaching session, ask the question, am I here today to ask questions, to listen or to tell you what to do? And then let them decide. Um, And you're still going to ask questions. You're still going to listen. But let them feel like they have control. And uh, Bill Bartlett taught me the three Ps, which is protection, potency, and permission. So they need to understand that whatever they say in a coaching session is between you and them. And you'll yeah. hold their confidence to the, your dying breath. Potency is that they have equal power, equal business stature. And permission, they can say anything. And in doing that, and that you know, comes back to Ian Dodds' point about inclusiveness. I think giving people that kind of uh, safe environment, and you talked about you know, rep safety, I think that's really very important because mm-hmm. it's tough enough as it is. Selling is hard. And yeah. I mean, it, it, gets easier, it gets easier when you take the, yourself out of the way and when you allow yourself to focus on the simplicity of mm-hmm. your systems, your structures, your processes. Yes. And you, know, you talked about uh, almost having a recipe book for behavior to step back and reflect a lot of people find journaling incredibly powerful as a tool. And post-call debriefing, I think, is something that is massively underrated and almost mm-hmm. never done. But you, you miss all those lessons. And you know, I think um, Paul Lanigan taught me this, that the weakest thing is stronger than the strongest memory. If you write stuff down, mm-hmm. I mean, I've forgotten more than I've ever known because I haven't written stuff down. And I now get into the habit. My version of journaling is my LinkedIn posts. Because when I learn something yes. useful, I, I post content so I can share it, but also then it embeds it. Look, we're coming mm-hmm. to the top of the hour, but there is one topic that I want to touch on, um, which is the delicate topic of being black and a woman in sales. In- yes. I'm really curious okay. what the experience has been like, because as a fat, white, middle-aged man who's sort of got past it all, I have no idea what the reference point would be and uh, what, what it's like. And in terms of the kind of obstacles that you've had to face, um, yeah, to learn about that. So yesterday I was on an event uh, through Rev Genius, right? Because October is is Women in Sales Month, right? I think it's like Women in Small Business Month as well. It was Women in Sales Month, and so I, I got onto the. I was one of the panelists, so I was only black woman the panel, and the other four. I think there was four women. The other four women were were white women we had our, our moderator Galem, right? So she's a black woman as well. And there was a question that was asked, which was like, what's it like being the only woman on the, you know, fill in the blank of whichever team that you're on. And I heard one woman talk and she was sharing how the experience that she had was that she almost got like so many passes and, you know, she kind of got away with things. And for me, 
I remember like she said this and I was like, wow, I cannot relate. Yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I, <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, what? Um, and, and so, and, but it, not in the professional sense. Right. But I could relate. I could, I could think back to being, let's say like 14 years old. Cause I played basketball, um, pretty competitively and I was, and I was, and I was pretty good at, uh, at my game too. And so I remember going to, um, I went to go visit my, my, my uncle out in Tennessee. He takes me out to a, to a recreational center and we start playing and you have like all these like kind of grown men. I could only imagine they're like thirties, forties kind of guys. And they saw me a 14 year old young woman and they're like, we're not going to match her. Right. We're not going to put any body on her. So they just overlooked me. And then, so it, it took me <laughs> scoring on them multiple times for them to be like, all right, that's enough. Like, we're, actually <laughs> that's gonna enough. Play. we're actually, we're actually going to take her seriously now. So I was like, okay, like I can, I can get that, that piece of things. But in the, in the context, number one, not all places that I've been in, right. Have I been aware of my blackness or my womanness, right. In the times where I felt as though that played a part, right. And most of the time it was a sinister energy to it. I felt as though number one, I couldn't even fit in with the women because all the women were white women and the white women had access and privileges to things that I didn't have, right? So everything as simple as being able to get mentorship from the CEO. When I came in and I was talking to the CEO, it's like, actually, no, I can't do this, right? While he was mentoring the person right next to me. It was something as simple as, you know, being able to like raise, and, and also like, I'm so I'm like 5'10", <laughs> right? I'm a, I'm a tall person, I take up space, right? Like kind of like energetically, I'm, I'm very open in that regard and I get very passionate as well. And what I saw is that like, again, there was almost this, there's a prize put onto being, you know, kind of a, I don't want to use the word submissive, right? But diminutive, like to be smaller and whatnot. So for me, there was times where I was just like, I just don't fit. I was like, there's nothing that I can do to change being black or being a woman there might be nothing that I can do to change somebody's perception as to like what I'm capable of, even though I'm black and a woman, you know, for me, yes. So that, that experience, I think that's, that experience was just so sad for me. Like, so it was so frustrating. It was so sad. It was, uh, it made me question my worth and my self-esteem so much. Cause I'm but, like, I like how I was like, I'm never going to be white. Right. I'm never going to be a man in those kind of situations, like for me, I felt like I almost had to let go of my hopes and dreams and ambitions for myself. Right. So what was the lesson that you would teach someone else who's young, black, female? Get out of there. And this is the exact same advice that I gave yesterday, right? Because people are talking about the experience of being a woman, right? In a predominantly male environment and like what can you do if you might be the only woman so like if you happen to be the only whatever it is like just by virtue of you being the only doesn't mean that you're not going to have a good experience but if that if that culture if that's like that ecosystem is plagued by misogyny or harassment or discrimination and bias and things like that my thought is in staying you're saying this is this can be tolerated. Like this is actually not that bad when it actually, like, in my opinion, it is very bad. It's like, all right, if you're staying in those places and you have to be kept small and there are nine other places where you can be your full self and be, you know, and where you can grow and where like you having a slight difference, right. Gives you a different perspective and that's going to be valuable and it's going to be celebrated. And so I think like 
people are not allowing themselves to experience something much better in their career. So like for me, if I can go back in time, it's not to say, oh, hey, quit tomorrow. But it is like, hey, like let's plan an exit strategy and reflect as to why this is not the specific place and start to formulate questions to better identify what is it that is the place that you're going into? Is it just going to be a repeat of what you're leaving? Or are you actually taking the time to better qualify out? Like this, this place is not for me because, right. And this place is going to be really solid for me because I, I know this because it's because you know it, you know, it's your, it's your values, it's your principles, it's what you need to grow and to expand. And this is going to be the kind of company that's going to allow you to do just that. I think there are some really valuable lessons here for anybody who is different uh, in any way, shape or form. There's a, a really vital understanding. There is always the deal of the lifetime around the corner every month. There are great employers out there. There are great managers out there. And if you're stuck in a rut, and my favorite definition of a rut is a coffin with both ends kicked out. And more often than not, people will settle and do not allow yourself to be diminished or to let yourself be smaller than you are. Uh, Mm -hmm. Don't hold back because great talent will eventually rise to the top. Um, And go out and seek mentors. One of the best bits of advice I've given my uh, young contacts on LinkedIn is contact a dozen people whose history is your future. And ask them and say to them, uh, Gabrielle, your history is my future and I'm going to ask an enormous favor of you. Would you be my mentor? And I commit to you that I will come to you always prepared. I will give you advice and I will never waste your time. What I'm looking for is 20 minutes a month. Now, if you do that, I promise you people will say yes. They are not only flattered, but they are happy to do so. Uh, I already have a person in my mind of who I'm going to send this message to. So I'll let you know. (laughs) 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 But by doing that, you can expand your network and you don't have to be trapped. So this has been an amazing conversation. I'm delighted to have met you. And you do remind me very much of Alexine Mudoa, who I know um, is... uh, Oh, Alexine was on the event, was was one of the panelists yesterday on the event that I was on. I I think the two of you are supernovas waiting to happen. Um, And I look really look forward to seeing your careers grow in parallel. And I think the two of you should pally up because you share so many qualities and characteristics. It's a genuine pleasure. And we also live in like, because uh, she's based out of Chicago, right? right. Yes. Yeah. So uh, we're also not too far away from each other. I, I suspect going out for a drink might be a good idea when this lockdown. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna hit her up. Because again, I, uh, we, funny enough, so we've been connected on LinkedIn and through Slack groups. And yesterday was like the first time that we were in an event and I actually saw her face and had a chance to like have a dialogue alongside of her. And so we were like messaging each other on the side, like privately, like during the conversation too, and just like cracking jokes. So I was like, you know, even last night I was thinking to myself, like I need to develop a relationship with her because her results, of course, like that's one piece. And also the, uh, her, her efforts in creating affinity groups and empowering and advocating for women. Like those are the things that I think are incredibly powerful. I mean, those are things that I'm doing, especially for 
from folks from like black and brown communities too. So it seems like the interests align so much. Three other women that you should definitely engage with. Tamara McMillan, uh, Tamara McMillan, sorry. Juliana Vida, VIDA, and Lisa Palmer. They are absolutely at the top of their game and they are fabulous and they will be not phenomenal mentors for you. Okay, I'm going to look them up. Um, oh, yay, thank you. <laughs> uh, I'd be delighted to. I don't want to overrun too much because we already have, okay. and this has been fascinating. And this isn't about regret, but if you could go back to your 23-year-old self mm. and whisper in the idiot ear of Gabrielle, age 23. Oh, my God. Uh, what one choice bit of advice would you give her? Stay focused. I think that's it, right? I think it's stay focused. And what I mean by this, is specifically where the focus is on is it all starts with you. You talked about, this was mentioned in a conversation today is everybody like motivation is an internal fire, right? I would even say like within, like in, in that internal fire, right? There's an internal compass that says, this is what you're pointing to. Like here are what your passions are and pay attention to these things. If folks are experiencing anxiety, that to me typically is an indication that you're not in the right environment, right? So like, leverage that and allow like those feelings and those experiences to to help you navigate where comfort right and security actually is for yourself and stay focused on it because there are there's just so many distractions there's so many ways to get distracted what you say no to matters more than what you say yes to learning how to say no gracefully is one of the most useful skills i ever learned same i had a mentor who said you know she learned how to say what she needed to say and then put a period on it. And there's a book called The Power the Power of a Positive No, I right. believe is what it's called. But I learned that even in saying no, right, that no is yet another expression of a greater yes, right? Like your no's are actually yeses to something else. Like, no, I'm not going to spend time with this person tonight, but because I'm saying yes to eight hours of sleep. Absolutely. And what, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? So there's this question. That uh, so I'll be honest. I go to therapy all the time. It's so helpful. I would highly recommend. Honestly, that would might be my my advice. Go to therapy sooner. So my thirty three year old self. And the question that my therapist always asks me is, "How good could you tolerate your life being?" So like that is the so because there's so many good things happening right now. And then and I'm not trying to say that's like it is a little bit of a brag because I've worked really hard to get here. But like that to me is it is the thing that I grapple with is how can I allow myself to imagine more for myself. How can I get, like, how can I eliminate the limitations that I think that I have to carry? Okay, I have a fabulous exercise for you. It comes in two parts. Okay. So the first part is your default future. If you carry on as you are, mm-hmm. where will you be in 10 years? Where will you be living? What experiences? What will you have accrued? Uh, who will you be with? What will your life be like? And once you've uh, written that and you've pulled pictures from the internet uh, you've mm-hmm. identified um, you know, what that would look like and feel like. And let that percolate for about three or four weeks. And then mm-hmm. the next question is, what would my ideal future be? Um, and this is tied to dumb goals. So dumb goals are dream-based, uplifting, method-friendly, and behavior-based. Mm-hmm. And then you uh, implement smart behaviors to achieve those dumb goals. So Mm -hmm. the behaviors are specific, measurable, 
uh, attainable, uh, repeatable, and time-bound. And the ideal future is built into that dream base. There is no limit. And more often than not, what people find, and I don't want to put thoughts in your mind here, but more often than not, it's about the contribution that you can make. Yes. Impact that you can have on others. Because for me, that's that's been the thing that's uh, driven me. I think that the pinnacle of my working life was when a client I hadn't worked with for nine years phoned me to thank me because the principles that I taught him, he taught to his daughter in order to help her stop being bullied. And the girl, Oh, man. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, even now I'm getting a little thrill up my spine. I'm getting, I got, I got the, I got the shiver me timbers. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, which brings me to the next question about great books. If you haven't read it, there's a book called Be More Pirate. And Shiver Me Timbers got me thinking about that. Uh, I think you'll love that book. What What have you been influenced by reading, watching, listening to? You know what? If I'm going to give one podcast, I'm going to give a podcast. And the podcast I would recommend is called On Being with Krista Tippett. You can find it on Apple Music or Spotify. And what Chris, like in, in the conversations that Krista Tippett is having, right? So she'll have a guest on and they'll have a conversation and it's really about like what our experience is like as humans like in the world given all the things that are happening right so it could be from the point of view of a author right who is also a black man from brooklyn kind of thing it could be from a a scientist right who studies the noises of elephants and like really like being able to look around in our environment and understand Number one, that we're not alone. I think like that's the biggest thing to understand how we can better connect with the people around us as well as like the world around us, you know, even the nature, right, in the environment. And also, I think there's just so much wisdom that's shared that for me, in listening to these conversations, I felt like, oh, wow, number one, I've learned something. I've, I've become aware of maybe a new concept in learning about different perspectives. I almost, I felt more comfortable wherever I went. So like for me, it was all about being able to almost like settle in to like my like my humanity, right? And to feel more okay. comfortable just being myself. Well, I've just uh, clicked on that and I've followed it. So I should be listening to that going forward. Thank you. How can people get hold of you, Gabrielle? <laughs> yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn. That's it. That's the only way right now. <laughs> so Gabrielle Blackwell, the sales development satirist. That's me. So feel free to connect, comment. I'm pretty accessible. Excellent. Gabrielle Blackwell, thank you. Thank you. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed the conversation, please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you've got thoughts around the compensation, if you've got thoughts around diversity, equality, inclusion, then please write to me. If you know somebody who'd be a great guest to talk on those topics, then please email me at marcus at laughs-last.com. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.